Welcome back to Brain Biohacking with your host, Kayla Barnes. We dive into all things optimal health, optimal brain health, nutrition, peak performance, cognitive excellence, biohacking, longevity, and so much more. Dr. Khan, it's such a pleasure to have you here with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm so excited to talk about stem cells, gene therapy, and you are doing some of the most innovative things. Um, I first heard you on my friend Dave Asprey's podcast, and I'm just so excited to discuss everything that you're up to. Yeah, I've been very, very kind of lucky in terms of getting exposure to the right things at the right time. And it's just been a fun ride. And I'm excited to share with the world what's possible and give people hope that there's a brighter medicine ahead of us. Absolutely. Well, let's start at the beginning. Um, what did what did you what inspired you to go to med school? How was that experience for you? And what have you kind of done so far that's led you up to this more regenerative medicine place? Yeah, I mean, I, I think unlike most doctors, I was actually like just a gym rat before I went into medicine. So I was a personal mm -hmm. trainer. And because I was a personal trainer, I was obviously into preventative health. And a lot of what we did in training was like, oh, we got people with diabetes or high blood pressure, or their doctor told them that they need to work out more. And so it was always about getting people optimizing their health from a movement and nutrition perspective. And so that concept always just made sense to me. And then so when I went into med school, it was kind of like we learned about all these chronic diseases, but then we didn't actually learn about how to prevent them or how to reverse them. We just kind of learned how to manage them. And so I was always just like, okay, this is a little bit weird. Why aren't we actually learning the root cause and why aren't we trying to fix that? And so I was obviously drawn towards functional medicine and integrative medicine and just kind of looking at it from a different lens. And so during medical school, I studied both allopathic medicine and functional and integrative medicine. I would say back then, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I guess I'm pretty old now, but that was in 20, you know, up to, to <laughs> in 2011 to 2015 is when I did medical school. And uh, I mean, back then, regenerative medicine wasn't really a thing. I think it was, it was just, there was the talk about stem cells, but it was still very, very early days. Uh, and so it was mainly about functional, more about functional medicine, like, uh, you know, like root cause in terms of understanding and reversing disease through inter interventional, like, nutritional supplements and lifestyle measures. And it was pretty incredible to see what people were doing, just using those type of approaches. And so I was always drawn towards that. And it's just as a practitioner, I wanted to kind of work with my hands. And so I was very interested in interventional medicine. And that's what kind of drew me towards sports medicine. And during sports medicine, we get to do a lot of injections and treatments for chronic pain and injuries. But they're traditionally just using cortisone and then it's like physio and surgery. And me being who I am, I was like, this is not very satisfactory because many patients aren't getting better. And also I feel like I'm causing harm if I'm just doing cortisone because like we all know cortisone is chondrotoxic, which means it eats away at cartilage and it weakens tendons and ligaments and all this other stuff. So I got drawn towards regenerative medicine because people were using PRP and stem cells and all sorts of other stuff to treat injuries. Uh, and my mentor, Dr. Anthony Gallia in that field, he was kind of the pioneer of PRP. So he was the first one in the world to do it. He did it for like Tiger Woods and all sorts of people. And so I just learned a ton about interventional based regenerative medicine. And then I kind of progressed from there 
from PRP into stem cells. And then that got me opening up a whole world because I started doing a clinical trial in that's Health Canada approved in Canada for stem cells. And then that kind of opened up this whole world of, okay, regenerative medicine, what is it? And then I realized it's not just stem cells, it's gene editing, gene therapy, cell therapy, and tissue engineering, and combining those three together into really the new generation of therapeutics. And I just got fascinated by it because I felt like there's so many chronic diseases that are not, that are not being well addressed. And this has the potential to actually reverse and cure and and in a lot of cases prevent chronic disease. And so I just got excited by that. And now I'm obsessed with that whole concept. So it's exciting because I feel like I'm in this world where it I have a very unique knowledge set and skill set that allows me to help a lot of people that the traditional system can't help. And it's the best feeling to help patients who have lost all hope and you can give them hope again. Mm, I love that. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, and it is so exciting. So let's first talk about stem cells in general. So there's so much confusion about stem cells and there's so many different clinics, different types, different applications. We have like stem cells, we have exosomes, Wharton's jelly, um, so many different options. Can you just give us your opinion on basically a rundown of each one of them and what you think works, what you think might not be as um, effective? Yeah, I think the problem, to be honest, is the word stem cell in which we can't change. It's too, yeah. it's, it's, it's in the vernacular now. Everyone uses that word. And so it, it just because stem cell doesn't really denote anything specific. It's yes, a stem cell is a very broad term for saying just a cell that helps with repair and it can divide and grow into new tissue, like theoretically. But clinically, what people are using for the most part in the US especially are not stem cells. So to understand that, we have to go back a bit into that understanding that there's different types of stem cells. So for example, there's something called hematopoietic stem cells, which are the classic ones from bone marrow transplants. So that's been done since the 1960s. So that procedure has been around for a long time for treating leukemia and other, and then now it's being used for other conditions as well. But but people understood even back then that we could use a bone marrow transplant to kind of heal the body. And so, but hematopoietic stem cells, there's something called HLA, which is an antigen or a protein, and you have to have matching. And that's kind of why when people hear about bone marrow transplants, they're like, oh, you ha it has to be a match. So it's obviously very limited because there has to be specific, very specific use cases and specific matches. And so it wasn't until 1992, Dr. Arnold Kaplan, he coined the term mesenchymal stem cell or more appropriately mesenchymal stromal cell, which just means it has the ability to scaffold and regenerate tissue. Uh, and so MSCs, is kind of what most people are using now clinically. And mesenchymal stem cells are derived from umbilical cord tissue or bone marrow or from fat. And like you said, Warden's jelly is just umbilical cord tissue, but then there's also something called umbilical cord blood. And then there's also perinatal, other types of perinatal stem cells like placental fluid. So there's very, there's two large categories of stem cells. One is, adult stem cells, and then one is perina perinatal stem cells. And we're talking about mesenchymal stem cells now. And adult is obviously fat or bone marrow. And then perinatal is all the stuff we just talked about. 
So that, that kind of gives a framework for understanding, okay, so if I'm getting a stem cell, am I getting adult or perinatal? And then the other question you need to ask yourself is, are these stem cells actually being isolated and then being cultured and expanded? Because if you're just taking your bone marrow and your fat and you're just spinning it and then injecting it back in, that's not a true stem cell. That's actually what's called a committed progenitor cell, meaning it has ability to turn into certain cell lines, but it's not truly a stem cell in the sense that it has an ability to be pluripotent and have all the different differentiation capacity and regenerative capacity of, of, of a mesenchymal stem cell. Cause you have to actually isolate it and then you have to grow it in the lab. And to put that in reference, because in the U S there's so many doctors who are saying, Oh, we're doing stem cells. We do stem cells, but they're just taking your bone marrow or your fat uh, or, or they're just take, or perhaps they're ordering it from some manufacturer, but they're not expanded. So they're maybe putting 500,000, maybe a million stem cells in your body. Uh, but to put it in context, we, we often use between anywhere from minimum 10 to 25 million up to 200 million, sometimes more, uh, for stem cells. So it's, it's just an order of magnitude difference than what you're going to get in the U S and what's allowed in the U S and if there's clinics offering culture expanded ones, then that is unfortunately illegal. And you just got to be wary because you just don't know what you're getting, which is why I'm in Dubai right now and working here because it's legal here and I can do, I can do these things. And I have patients who travel from all over to come see me abroad. I love that. Thank you for the overview. When it comes to stem cells in the U.S., um, if what is the efficacy? So, is it? Do you think that the results will be clinically positive using the non-expanded stem cells? It, it really depends on what you're treating. Like, if you are like from a sports injury perspective, if you're treating like a rotator cuff tear, even osteoarthritis, like earlier stages, like those work perfectly fine. But for anything more advanced, like severe osteoarthritis or autoimmune conditions or chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, a lot of these chronic complex conditions, those those stem cells won't really do much. And they often end up just being a waste of time and money for patients. And it's it's disheartening because the patients don't know because they're told they're getting stem cells. But we, as we, as we just talked about, they're not really getting stem cells. And they're also, so it's just, it's also the transparency of being honest and saying, this isn't really a true stem cell. This is more, this is the function. It's more anti-inflammatory. Uh, and so at least if you explain that it's not really regenerative, then they can understand what they're getting. And for advanced compl complex conditions, the efficacy isn't really there. Uh, meaning it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't really work for that. And that's the problem because people are saying stem cells can work for everything. Uh, and that's the other issue too, is right now it's very generic. And that's why we're getting into this new era of gene edited stem cells, which I'm sure we'll talk about. <laughs> yes, I am actually, yeah, let's talk about that now. So this is so exciting So talk about gene edited stem cells. Yeah, so this is this is what I'm super excited about. This is the revolution. We're we're in the beginning of the revolution. So let's say it took 30 years from Dr. Arnold Kaplan, who coined MSCs, to really start using them clinically. And unfortunately, a lot of he kind of had a good quote. He said it, it went from it went from bench to business instead of bench to bedside. So mm -hmm. 
unfortunately, a lot of people just took MSCs and ran with it. Like there's a million stem cell clinics all over the world now, and they're all offering all sorts of stuff and it's medical tourism. And you just, you just don't know what you're getting and they're using it. They're not using it appropriately a lot, meaning they're just using it for everything and anything because it's just, they're taking advantage of a lot of desperate patients. And so I think it's unfortunate because it's really put a bad reputation on medical tourism. And there are some legitimate people who are trying to do it the best way. And so the MSCs took 30 years of research to get to a point of what are called now IPSCs. So IPSCs are kind of the next generation of stem cells. They're induced pluripotent stem cells. So Professor Yamanaka in Japan won the Nobel Prize for basically figuring out that we can take any cell in your body and we can turn it back into a baby stem cell. So the concept of that, first of all, is kind of crazy. It's I think it's hard for people to appreciate that your body even has this inherent ability to heal itself, which it clearly does. And so we're just we're just trying to figure out and unmask that now. And so by using the Yamanaka factors, you basically can make any cell act like a baby stem cell or embryonic stem cell. And embryonic stem cells are super powerful, even more so than mesenchymal stem cells. But the risk is that they can turn into tumors because they can just keep growing. And so IPSCs, even though they were discovered quite a few years ago, no one could figure out how to use them clinically. So until recently, and then recently there was what's called gene editing, where they were able to figure out, okay, if we put this specific gene edit inside of this IPSC, we can prevent it from having uncontrolled growth or uncontrolled proliferation. So it's called fail-safe, it's a patented technology. And then we can also gene edit it to make it hypoimmune, which means it's not cleared up by your immune system as quickly because the problem with MSCs, umbilical cord tissue, even though they're immunoprivileged, they still do trigger an immune response and they're, they're cleared up relatively quickly. So when you get stem cells, you're, they're right now, at least the first generation, they're still cleared up within a couple of weeks. And the main effect is through paracrine signaling, which means a signaling cascade that they send while they're in there to your body's own endogenous stem cells. So they can still have a profound healing effect, even if they're only there for a couple of weeks. But now with the next generation, with the gene edits, they can stick around much longer. And the hottest area of kind of research is how do we enhance these IPSCs to do more of what we want, which is to regrow tissue. And this was really... So this is really a profound change because we're moving away from MSCs to IPSCs. And now IPSCs are really cool little cells because they have the ability to be turned into different cell lines. So what that means is we don't just have MSC, like in the first generation, it was just like, let's just use MSCs for everything. We'll use MSCs for your brain. We'll use them for your knee. We'll use them for every possible condition. And that to a certain extent, I mean, yes, MSCs can be used for a lot of different things, but it definitely also doesn't work for a lot of stuff. And whereas with IPSCs, you can differentiate them into specific cell lines. So it's called, so for example, you can have what's called an IPSC-derived beta islet cell. So induced pluripotent stem cell that is turned into a beta islet cell, and then that can actually be injected into the pancreas, and that can regrow insulin-producing cells. And that's actually been done in clinical trials already. And that's something we're doing. We're, we're starting a type one diabetes clinical trial 
we're using our own uh, proprietary IPSC derived beta islet cells, and we're combining it with a protocol with peptides and kind of doing a proper holistic clinical trial, which no one does, which is also super frustrating. But uh, for some reason, the clinical trials are always very just reductionistic because that's the only way drug companies can get the you know, the patents and the money and all that stuff to get their drugs off whatever. And so whereas we're going to do more of a protocol, uh, but but that's that's a trial we're working on. But there's already published data on the diabetes, but also on Parkinson's, for example, this year, IPSC derived dopamine neurons were injected into the brain and they actually they actually help put patients into remission because they actually start producing new neurons that are producing dopamine. And as we know, in Parkinson's, dopamine neurons get depleted, and that's what causes the disease. So you're actually fixing the problem. You're not just medicating it. And that's really what's super exciting about iPSCs. That is so exciting. So can you give us a high-level overview of how you actually do the gene editing? Like, what, what is kind of the process of that, of the stem cells? It's so interesting. Yeah, so basically it's it's actually, yeah, it is actually very interesting. You just take a, because you can just take a skin biopsy from a patient and basically you use the Yamanaka factors and then that skin biopsy, those skin cells turn into iPSCs, the induced pluripotent stem cells. And then you can use CRISPR, which is a gene editing technology to gene edit them in, with these different, whatever edits that you want. And then, and then you can differentiate them into whatever cell line you want. So that's kind of the gist of how you do it. However, we are working on with our own technology, which we'll talk about with MiniCircle to create our own iPSCs as well, because MiniCircle is our own kind of proprietary plasmid gene therapy technology, and it allows us to accurately edit genes as well or insert or target certain genes of interest. And CRISPR does have the risk of having offsite targets, but it can do up to more than 10,000 base pairs. Whereas with MiniCircle, it's not as powerful, but it has 100% accuracy. If there's any gene of interest, we can do that with accuracy. So basically, there's there's two, there's two different gene editing platforms, but CRISPR is the most commonly still used. But we're going to transition over time to kind of our technology with MiniCircle and then create our own uh, cell lines as well. That's amazing. How long has, been, how long has CRISPR been around? It's been around for over a decade now. I think it was around 2010, it really started getting traction. And uh, I think it went public in 2012, 2013 or something. But yeah, no, Jennifer Duwadna, the, the genius behind CRISPR, she she's very excited about the future too. We had a chat with her or Dave Asprey did on our behalf a few weeks ago. So hopefully we can do some collaborative work with her too, because there's just, I think there's so much excitement around the gene and cell therapy space because everyone kind of knows that what what's currently offered is just not working. Yeah, absolutely. For anyone that might not know, can you explain how the the Yakamama factors are applied? Yeah, Yamanaka. So it's a it's a so basically it's it's just transcription factors. So uh so there's there's four of them. So um like people it, it's like OCK4, KLF um four and uh, and basically what they do is when you over express these transcription factors, they essentially at a, a they, when you over express them. So when they apply the technology, like the gene editing technology to over express them, it just it tells the cell to essentially turn back 
into a baby stem cell. So it's just it's essentially just a signal that they're telling, kind of sending to the somatic cell. Amazing. And how long does the whole process take? Uh, it takes a few, typically a few weeks uh, to kind of uh, to to do the iPSC and then to differentiate them and then to culture and expand them. Usually, like three four weeks. That's amazing. Where do you think the like primary? You mentioned a couple conditions like Parkinson's, but where do you think the future and the primary conditions to treat will be with these stem cells? I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but everything and anything with chronic disease, and then eventually even rare and incurable diseases, because gene therapy, you can do that. You can you can literally take us if you have a defective gene or cells in your body, you can take them out. You can use gene editing technology. And then you can fix the cells, and then you can basically put them back in. Uh, and so that's that's and that's already starting to happen in in a lot of work. So I see a very bright future where chronic diseases. So like the burden, we we both know the majority of burden of chronic di- of of disease on the system is is basically diabetes, high blood pressure, dementia, and neurodegenerative conditions, right? And and uh, it's it, it's it's those lifestyle kind of associated diseases and we all everyone kind of knows to eat healthier exercise i think we're really past that uh, and that's why i'm saying we're entering the world of medicine 4.0 is kind of what i like to say is where we're using cell and gene therapy to help people do what they want longer and live a healthier life so they can continue to exercise even when they're much older because of cell and gene therapy because we're actually modifying their natural kind of aging process or their disease process and changing it at a at a root level. So the what and like we already talked about diabetes and Parkinson's, but the one I think I'm very excited about is cancer, because cancer, unfortunately, has not the research just again, it's 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 the oncology field with the pharmaceutical industries. It, it just hasn't moved the needle much like patients maybe live on average, four weeks longer than they did like 20 years ago when it comes to like treatments. And they're not, and it's not really extending quality of life either. And so a lot of the cancer treatments are really not that great. And the promise of regenerative medicine is now so exciting because there's something like CAR T, which has been around for a while and it's actually even FDA approved now, which is where you take your T cells and you gene edit them using something called chimeric antigen receptor which essentially allows those T cells to hone in like a sniper and kill cancer cells. And then there's different gene edits you can put on the T cell to make them even more effective now. And that's just the first generation. Now there's like third and fourth generations. And basically you can apply that CAR antigen onto even natural killer cells, which are part of your innate immune system. Most people have heard of probably natural killer cells, but basically like the name says, they're natural killers. They kill stuff that doesn't belong there. They kill cancer, they kill infections. And, but the problem is cancer can become immunoevasive. And by applying CAR antigen onto NK, you can make it hone in and kill the cancer. And, and then you can combine this with something called dendritic cells, which are antigen presenting cells, which can present the cancer to these cells and make the, make the whole process more effective. It's like a beautiful, beautiful symphony of orchestrating the immune system to do what you want to kill the cancer. And this is something I learned in Japan. Uh, they've been doing this for 10 years using cell therapy and immunotherapy to treat cancer, but it's still not in the US, which is such a shame. How are the outcomes in Japan? It's 
It's based off, I mean, obviously it's anecdotal, but I can tell you they have stage four pancreatic cancer patients, for example, which is one of the worst things mm-hmm. who are still alive today. Uh, and they they did it 10 years ago for those type of patients. So the mm-hmm. fact that, and, and, and of course, there's many others like that. Uh, and so the fact that, that that works in those type of severe cases, just it gives me so much hope for the future uh, because that's, again, it's, that's kind of, they're just doing natural killer and dendritic cells, but now we're going to do the gene edited cells. Our, our, our goal is we're, we're working on creating our own cell lines uh, of CAR-NK, CAR-T, and, and dendritic cells, and then we're going to do our own trials uh, for cancer patients as well. That's so exciting. If the technology has been around for a while and, you know, they've been doing it in places like Japan, having good outcomes, why do you think that we're so slow to implement things like this over here in the U.S.? Well, you you know you're opening up Pandora's box, so <laughs> <laughs> that, that's uh, it's there's such a complicated issue with a million different reasons. I think what's happening with peptides right now highlights everything people need to understand about the current state of affairs in the U.S. with regulatory bodies. And for people who aren't familiar, they're essentially banning peptides, making them illegal and closing down manufacturers, making it difficult for practitioners to prescribe them uh, unless there are like Ozempic or Monjoro, which are pharmaceutical FDA approved peptides. And the reason they're doing this is, in my opinion, it has nothing to do with safety or efficacy, because we all know there's thousands, if not millions of people who've been used peptides uh, without issues for a variety of things. doesn't mean it works for everything, but the fact is they're very safe and they can be prescribed by doctors and be supervised instead of just banning them. And the fact that they're doing that with peptides and the reason they're doing that is because they basically want to control who is getting, they want to control the whole they, they basically just want to control everything because that's the way they make money. That's <laughs> just, that just, uh, it is what it is, unfortunately. And, the, and I have the reason, and I can, I can prove that or, or I support that argument because let's take, let's take Manjuro, for example, it's, it's the generic peptide is trizipatide, which is, it basically improves insulin sensitivity and it's the GLP-1 agonist, which means it helps to keep you fuller. It helps with weight loss. It helps with diabetes, pretty good peptide. Uh, but of course, what the, instead of allowing you to get trizipatide at a fraction of the cost, the drug companies patent it, and then they add a little complex to it, like literally like, a let's just say like a vitamin C that does nothing, but it's trizipatide and this complex. So now it's a proprietary or patented drug. And then they can, they can get insurance companies to cover it and they can charge five times as much and they're making huge profits. Uh, and this is the game they play, and this is what they're going to continue to do. They're trying to do that. They tried to do with psilocybin as well, uh, and they're trying, they're trying to do with NMN too. So I think I think they're just they're they're just not good people, and they don't really want the best for people's health. Uh, and any doctor who says otherwise is delusional. Uh, and I think th- it doesn't mean that there are drugs that are life saving and help people. For sure, there are, but. The reason they're doing it is not because they care about people, it's because they care about profits, because they are a business, and they don't want to actually fix people. Uh, and this is just the reality. And unfortunately, the US has give kind of sold its soul to pharma, because of, and you'd have to go back to history as to why that is, but there's, that would be a very long podcast. But the gist of it is, <laughs> the gist of it is that F- FDA, 70% of their donations, quote unquote, comes from pharmaceutical companies. So they basically are 
very influenced and they have lobbyists and they have a whole infrastructure in place for pushing drugs and they know how to do it. They know how to get the approvals. They know how to get the media headlines. They know how to do all of it. And it's a game to them. Uh, and it's it's the same game, big oil played with Tesla, uh, where they tried to bankrupt them. And Tesla was the most shortest stock in history. And they almost went out of business because big oil wanted them to. Uh, luckily, they survived. But it's the same thing with what we're doing with cell and gene therapy. They're going to try to suppress it and uh, make it go away as much as possible. But it's it's inevitable. Yeah, I I totally agree. Do you think that the the long game for them with peptides is to turn them into a pharmaceutical and then profit off of it or just completely oh, ban them? They're, they're 100% like Lilly or Pfizer will come out with BPC-157 and it'll be a slight, it'll add like some complex and they'll be like, yeah, BPC-157 for $1,200 covered by insurance companies. Ugh, such it's such a disaster. I mentioned, yeah, we um I have a clinic and we were doing prescription peptides. Our providers were sending them in and then, you know, immediately just a notice that you basically can't get any of them anymore. And it's just, you know, we've seen so many good outcomes. And like you said, not every peptide works for everything, but there are some really amazing ones that do work really well. And these are coming from FDA approved pharmacies, but for some reason they feel like all of a sudden there's some reason to take them away. So for profits. And in, in medicine, there's something called number needed to treat versus number needed to harm, which is mm -hmm. basically how many people you actually need to treat to for this treatment to actually do what it says. So for example, it's not it's not one to one for most pharmaceuticals. In fact, it's not even close to one to one. So mm -hmm. to give an idea, like a statin, a cholesterol lowering drug, the number needed to treat is something like one in like 200. So you actually need to give it to 200 people for it to actually reduce one death. So wow. it's, it's so people don't, so whereas with, and, and there's all these risks with statins, we know it, it, it's been linked to dementia and increasing risk of diabetes uh, and, and myalgias and all sorts of other things. And so there's risk with these drugs, whereas with peptides, we know they're safe. So the number needed to harm, which is how many people does it harm relatively speaking? Because if the number needed to harm versus number needed to treat is higher, then why are you even giving this drug in the first place? Which a lot of drugs are actually like that, which is hilarious. If you look at, there's a good website called the NNT.com and it shows you how much ineffective most pharmaceuticals really are, but do doctors still prescribe them because they, they don't know, they just follow guidelines. Uh, but with peptides, you're basically, there's very rarely, is there, I, I haven't in my practice, like I've done peptides for thousands of people. I've maybe seen one reaction in my life of that peptides, like of someone having like a bit of an allergy reaction at that. And it was like, it wasn't bad, but that was it. Yeah. And so they're so safe. So the number needed to harm is so low and the number needed to treat like, so like it's, it's definitely more than one in 200 that you see clinical improvement. You know what I mean? So yeah, uh, I think it's like, it's ridiculous what they're, what they're doing and they don't, they want to keep it complicated uh, because once you simplify it and you understand like fundamental principles of biology, kind of like in physics, there's first principles. And now we understand there's fundamental principles of biology, which is basically like those kind of 10 hallmarks of aging, which is essentially how does the cell become dysfunctional? It's actually not that complicated and, and you can simplify it. And then you realize the root of almost all chronic diseases is they're very similar processes. They're mitochondrial dysfunction, reactive oxygen species, chronic inflammation, and 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 cell to cell communication gets impaired, dysregulated nutrient sensing, all this other stuff. Uh, that basically we know governs cellular dysfunction. And if we can restore the cellular health, we can restore disease. 
And that's the whole idea behind what we're doing is precision to restore self-function. But that's not good for business because you actually cure people. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, wow. Thank you. We're so on the same page. Um, it was interesting conversations like calling all the patients and saying that peptides were going away because everyone just knows they already, most people in the industry or even like from a patient standpoint, they already understand like why the FDA is taking them away. Yeah. And so I, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see what people do. If, if my prediction, and I mean, maybe it's just because we're, I'm in this world, but I, I just think medical tourism is going to become more and more popular because people yeah. are just, not satisfied with the health they're getting in the U.S. and Canada, same thing. Canada, my, I'm from Canada, and we're the same. We're we're the same as U.S. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. It's so it's so wild to me. Also, um, I don't really ever watch TV, but from time to time, if I'm at someone else's house and they have a TV on or something of that nature, it's every single commercial is a commercial for a pharmaceutical. Like there's no other commercials. It's just one right after another. It's it's really um, crazy. And I think the U.S. is one of the only countries that allows marketing of that nature of pharmaceuticals on television. Yeah, like I said, they, they, they sold their soul to pharma a long time ago. And uh, this is just we're reaping what you sow. And unfortunately, it's going to take a big movement of change to really change the dynamics of how it works. And they spend so much money on marketing to doctors, too. Uh, mm -hmm. I think I think I, I can't recall exactly, but the budget of spending on doctors is similar, if not more than how much they spend on uh, budget on consumers. So mm -hmm. it's and 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 doctors like we're medical doctors. Our job is to protect our patients and help them with the best available evidence. So it's really a shame because unfortunately, most doctors aren't in medicine. I, I mean, I, I think a lot of them want to do good, but they they're in the system. And so it's very hard for them to step back and realize that they're, it's almost kind of like being in the matrix. Like you don't know you're in the matrix unless you step back and you realize you're in the matrix. So it's yeah. hard for them to, it's hard for them to detach and like realize, wait a minute, why am I prescribing this? Why am I doing this? Like they don't really question it. They just kind of follow it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So Moving on, this injection that reverses your biological age by like seven to nine years. Can you talk about this? Yeah. So I touched on it a little bit earlier. So our company is called Mini Circle. And the reason it's called that is because the technology that we're using is basically a plasmid, which is a circular strand of DNA, hence the name Mini Circle. It's a, it's a mini circle of DNA. And unlike mm -hmm. viral vectors, which were traditionally used for gene therapies, plasmids don't have the risk of translocating or causing infection. Uh, it's, it's what's called an episomal vector, which is non-integrating. So it's not going to actually change your genome. It just changes the local piece of tissue that we inject into. And then it tells your body to increase production of whatever gene of interest that we want. So mm -hmm. that's what mini circle gene therapy technology is at a very high level. And the other unique thing about our technology is that it's reversible because it's of E. coli origin. So you can take an antibiotic called tetracycline and it's a kill switch and it will get it out of your body. So for whatever reason, let's say you want it out. We have no documented adverse effects in the six years we've been studying it. But let's just say if you did, for whatever reason, uh, you could just take a kill switch and it would be out of your body, unlike a viral vectors. Uh, and viral vectors also cannot be repeated. This is 
something that lasts one and a half to two years and can be repeated as many times as you would like. Uh, so there's some unique benefits of our technology compared to traditional technology. And I think the other big thing is it's very scalable. It's temperature sensitive or stable and it's it's easy to transport. And yeah, and it's one of those things that the reason I was so excited to work with them is because I believe it's one of those things that we want to see have millions, if not eventually billions of people get uh, like the long-term vision is for these gene therapies to be accessible to everyone and have insurance companies cover them. Uh, and that's going to take time. But the reason we believe that is because, like you said, the statin gene therapy can reduce your biological age by quite a bit. And we're not just talking like a science project. We're actually talking stuff that's happening now and there's clinical benefits. So people actually have more energy. They have more strength. They get reduction of inflammation in the body. So a lot of times even their chronic pain improves and they actually just feel a sense of vitality. And, the, and as a gym rat, as I said earlier, I'm a gym bro. So to me, I'm always about muscle. I'm always about muscle. And I and and as Gabrielle Lyon coined the term, muscle is the organ of longevity. It, it really it really is. And I I've always believed that since since a young age. And that's why I do resistance training. Uh, and I believe everyone needs to do it. But the problem is you're fighting an uphill battle as you get older. So you lose muscle. Quite, quite, quite dramatically after, especially after age sixty. But even after age thirty, you're losing like half a percent of lean body mass a year if you're not if you're not doing resistance training. So, and then sarcopenia is arguably a bigger problem to the society than osteopenia or osteoporosis, which is most people know low bone density, but most people don't realize low muscle mass is a much bigger problem because muscles protective for your body from cancer, from diabetes, for every chronic disease on the planet, pretty much. And the reason, and it also, now we know muscles actually is, there's a very interesting thing about muscle too. It, it helps with T regulatory cells. So meaning it helps with immunotolerance. And one of the biggest drivers of aging is um, immunosenescence and immune dysregulation uh, or chronic inflammation at, or inflammaging as a colloquial term. And so if we can protect that integrity of the muscle, that's one of the best ways to fight aging and follow statin. It inhibits myostatin. And by inhibiting myostatin, it allows your body to put on lean body mass because myostatin is kind of the brakes on how much muscle mass you can put on. The way I, the the easiest way to remember that is those big muscular cows that are jacked is because they have a myostatin deficiency, those Belgian blues. Hmm. So because of myostatin deficiency, they basically just get hugely muscular. So follistatin is not going to make you jacked like that because it's not going to make you deficient in myostatin. But what it will do, it will it will lower your myostatin so you, you can put on muscle easier. It makes it easier. And it's very, very anti-catabolic. So you won't lose muscle as you age. And you also won't lose muscle if you're dieting. Because the problem with a lot of these peptides out there, unlike follistatin, is they're not anti-catabolic. You lose fat and you lose muscle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely a concern with like the semaglutide and all of these um peptides, I guess that they're still classified as, um, that people are taking is the muscle mass, lo losing muscle mass. Um, that, that is so interesting. So it also has an impact on inflammation, right? Yeah. It, it, it activates something called the FOXO3 pathway, and that has a systemic powerful reduction in inflammation. And we saw this in our study at six months, follow-up patients, intrinsic biological age, like you said, reduced dramatically anywhere from five to nine years, if you're if you're like in your 40s to 60s, but if you're over 60, it was like 12 years on average. 
uh, wow. or older. And some people were even 20, 30 years, which is crazy. Uh, yes. And they actually felt they actually felt younger. Like we had one guy who's he was a hyper responder, and we we're trying to we're studying him now because we're trying to figure out why was he such a big hyper responder. But basically, he's he's almost eighty, and he felt like he was like he literally said he felt like he was eighteen again, and his biological wow. age went down by like I think his went down by sixty three years, which sixty three. Yeah, I know it it wow. doesn't it doesn't make sense. Like, what is that? And we set a world record for intrinsic biological age reduction and telomere length increase. So does that mean he's going to live 60 years more? I don't think so, but it, 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 but clinically he does feel a lot better and he can exercise. And if arguably, if you can keep exercising and maintain your muscle, you can really make a big dent in aging. I think, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how, how much we can really revolutionize this anti-aging field with the with just the gene therapy. But then I'm, I'm excited to combine it with cell therapy as well, because one of my hypotheses is that, the thymus gland involution is one of the biggest drivers of aging and no one is really doing anything about that. So we're going to make iPSC drive thymus gland cells and we're going to inject them into the thymus gland to prevent it from involuting. That is so exciting. Well, another big issue too is autoimmunity. Um, not related, I guess, to the false statin, but just to go back to the stem cells. Is that something that could be addressed with these stem cells? Yeah, because what is autoimmunity in the first place? Like, I always say your immune system is like a teenager. And if you don't train it properly at a young age, it's going to misbehave when you're older. So you got to train it properly when you're young, which means getting exposure to dirt and animals and whatever, just being a normal kid and, and not being overly hygienic like we are in society, unfortunately. And so autoimmunity is so much more common now than it was 30 years ago. And a lot of that has to do with the environment we're in. And I think the food and toxins and probably a lot of other factors, but the point is your immune system is sending the wrong signals. And what we want to do is we want it to send the right signals. And so the fancy term for this is called immunomodulation. So meaning can we modulate the immune system so that it sends the right signals and doesn't attack itself? And turns out we can uh, with intravenous stem cells, there are many trials out there with inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, where patients actually go into remission. And I've actually had patients come off their meds with those conditions or even Hashimoto's and all sorts of uh, autoimmune conditions. But we have protocols. We use peptides and we use the IV stem cells. And now we have the FMT as well, the fecal microbial transplant. Uh, so mm -hmm. we're manufacturing our own poop pills because obviously the gut is where most of your immune system is. And repopulating the gut is an important part of treating many chronic diseases. It's been linked to almost every chronic disease, uh, and which is very fascinating. And I think if we can restore the gut health on a high interventional basis, because probiotics can help, but a lot of them are transitory, meaning they don't necessarily always repopulate the gut, whereas FMT is more like a high-level kind of intervention for repopulating the gut. And so doing that protocol, we can treat a lot of autoimmunity and and again, this is just the first generation. Now we're, we're transitioning into the iPSCs over the next few months. So I'm excited to see how much better the results are going to be with that. Uh, I, I'm thinking that less less frequent dosing and less frequent in, infusions will be needed because sometimes people need two to three infusions with the IV MSCs mm -hmm. uh, to get permission. But with the iPSCs, I, am, I, I could see it being less even. And, it's, and, and even like something like lupus has been treated using CAR-T. Uh, there was a trial done in Germany 
And mm -hmm. all patients, there was, I think, seven patients, but all of them went into remission and off their meds and sustained off their meds after a year with CAR-T. Like, how crazy is that? That's unbelievable. You know, if, if that was a pharmaceutical drug, it would make every headline, like on CNN and NBC and stuff like that. But because it's a cell-based therapy, you don't really hear about it. And that's that's just the pharma, pharma knows how to control the narrative when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, that is, I mean, it's just such a sad state of affairs, honestly. Um, I have a question really quick about these pills that you mentioned. So how do you, how do you know that the, the pills or the sample, I guess that you're putting into the pills is actually like of good quality? Oh, there's a whole science to that. And if you ever <laughs> want to, if you, if you do want to explore poop pills deeper, you can bring on my scientist if you like, Dr. Caroline Gannabis. She's a PhD human microbiome specialist. And she has a whole proprietary process on donor selection, encapsulation, uh, and the whole process of how to do it and select the right donor. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of uh, nuance to that as well, because yes, you have to test and you have to, and we also are testing before and after doing the FMT to make sure that they actually are repopulating the gut. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I only asked not because I'm super interested in, in I guess, uh, that topic, but it's just, it's so hard. Everybody's gut health, that not everybody, but so many people have issues with gut health. I mean, uh, it's almost every, I think our FMT business will be bigger than our selling gene therapy business, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, uh, people will, if it, every it, single person I've talked to is like, I want that. And, you know, I, I want it for myself. I, and I'm making it for myself first, selfishly, and then I'll give it to other people. But it's like, it's like everyone is so common nowadays. Plus, in mice, FMT has been shown to extend lifespan by 30%. So there's obviously anti-aging and longevity benefits as well, uh, because as you get older, there's more gut dysbiosis. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just so common nowadays. Okay, real quick, to go back to the fall statins. So when you do the injection, and just to recap, this is E. coli based, right? Of E. coli origin, but the actual okay. injection you in you is just a plasmid. And so, and the injection just goes in your arm or in your fat, and it takes two minutes and it lasts for about two years. And so the local piece of tissue that we're injecting the plasmid into, it now has, is, is genetically modified. So we like to say, welcome to the GMO club when we do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, so, but you're not actually modifying your whole genome. It's just that local tissue. And, but that tells your body to increase production of folostatin. And that lasts for about one and a half to two years. But the cool thing is, like we were saying, we can target, we can target anything with hundred percent accuracy. So we have a whole pipeline of products. So next year we're working, we're doing trials for clotho, luteinizing hormone and copper peptide. So we're going to have those three gene therapy products hopefully available to the public by 2025. That's amazing. Would the copper peptide enhance skin? What would be all the benefits? Cosmetics. Yeah, cosmetics. Because as you get older, your copper peptide levels fall. And that plays a role in skin rejuvenation and keeping your skin youthful looking. So, uh, so yeah, I, I imagine the cosmetic industry will love that product. Oh, my gosh. It's a huge industry. People will definitely love that. How long does it take to start feeling results? It takes about, on average, 10 days or so for people's level. We did, obviously, the, the study, the data we've done too. Some people's levels, fall statin levels increase within four to five days, but some people take 10 to 14 days. But definitely by two weeks, almost everyone notices the benefits. Uh, the only time people don't notice the benefit is if their body weight is over 200, like 30 pounds or so, then they 
probably need two dosages. So mm -hmm. we sometimes will do two just for the false down levels to reach the right level. Uh, but it it does, as my scientist Walter likes to say, it does what it says on the bottle. It works. It's not I like we're that. not we're not giving you something that's not going to work. It it increase it does increase your false down levels, and you will notice clinical benefits. And Are you looking? That's that's amazing. Um, are you looking at any other biomarkers, um, like pre-treatment? Yeah, we we looked at. I mean, the first the phase one trial I say was a bit generic because we just wanted to establish the safety and like like certainly efficacy. So we kind of just looked at CRP, homocysteine, ESR, and lipids and metabolic profile and stuff like that. But our phase two trial, which we're just in the process of setting up with Health Canada, uh, we have all the. It should be set up. It should be ready to go in the spring. Uh, so for people who want to be in that, they could probably be in that too. Uh, but uh, but basically, the phase two trial will look at a lot more cytokines and uh, deeper kind of levels of inflammation and uh, more more biomarkers. That's so exciting. Well, I could talk to you about this stuff for, I mean, a really long time, but um, I know that we're coming up on our end here. So where can people learn more about your treatment? And by the way, um, I intend on, as I mentioned, coming down to the clinic in New Mexico and, you know, exploring some of this stuff. I'm so excited. Yeah, we're actually in Los Cabos, which is beautiful because it's on the coast. It's super safe and it's all touristy. And I, yeah, we have our own clinic there and uh, and we have all the approvals and everything so we can do everything legally. Uh, and it's and like I said, it's it's only going to grow. And people who are interested, the easiest way to find me is definitely Instagram at dr.acon. Uh, and then we do have a, our company is called Eterna, uh, like eternal without an L. So our website is Eterna, Eterna.health. And that's where you'll find the mini circle stuff and all of our different projects and uh, different things that we're doing. Uh, we are hosting a longevity event on February 24th in Austin, Texas. So I would love for you to come. And if your audience is interested, uh, Dave Asprey, Ben Greenfield are speaking and Tom Bilyeu as well. And then myself, and we have a few other really top scientists and we have uh, someone named Andy O'Brien, who's not on social media, but he mm -hmm. is the top. He is the top trainer in the world. Uh, I don't say that lightly, but he's worked with um, his first. His first client ever was Sidney Crosby, who's a top NHL player in the world. Wow. And uh, after that, he's worked with you know Curry, Brady. He's worked with every top athlete in the world, and so he'll be speaking as well. And he'll be talking about fitness and longevity, and it's going to be a very unique event. And uh, I, I don't think Tom and I mean I don't think Ben and Dave usually speak at events, so having both of them together will be uh, will be a treat. Yeah, I saw that. I saw the flyer, um, and I was like, "Oh, this is interesting." Um, and I also love Austin, so I uh, definitely want to come. So, thank you so much. I'll make sure to include um, your website and everything, and all your details and your Instagram in the show notes. But this has been such a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Absolutely. Hacking was created and is hosted by Kayla Barnes. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kayla Barnes, does not accept responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of the information contained herein. Opinions of their guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical issue, consult a licensed physician.